0: Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm with my co-host Paul Danzigs. Thank you for being here, Paul. And I'm going to introduce our guest today, uh, LaRon Lee. He's a retired baseball player, and I I assume he's still coaching. It seems like he's he's very very active, and I know he's was was he's been a coach after he retired, and I'm sure he's got some people he's coaching out there. And I want to thank give a special shout out to his daughter Juliet for helping out with this. So thank you, Juliet Lee, for helping out with this. Um, so uh, is a retired baseball player. He played eight seasons with the St. Louis Cardinals, Dodgers, Indians, and Padres. Eleven season in Japan's Professional Baseball League. He played for the Loti uh, Orions Orions yes. Uh, four-time All-Star, four-time Best Nine Award. And I'm going to have him explain all that stuff because I'm sure we're going to get into that. And he is a coach, and he is a – member of the sacramento hall of fame and so you've done amazing amazing things in your life you were you were a first round draft choice by the cardinals out of high school which is like absolutely amazing and what i really like i gotta tell you i gotta tell you this i'm doing this interview from east oakland so you know i gotta give you love for what you did in in 1989 with the a's so we're definitely gonna get yes he's showing he's showing his nice world series ring so you know LaRon, i got love for you and i'm definitely gonna get yeah. into that
1: with you. I, and i gotta tell you the story on this ring too it's a great one
0: well you know what you might as well tell us the story right now because before i forget
1: okay well uh we win the world series um And I'm walking around the uh, stadium one day up in the offices, and uh, Pam, the secretary for uh, general manager that year, uh, asked me for my ring size. And she says, there's only two guys left that we haven't got the size, and it's you. And Conseco is waiting to be the last guy because he wants the largest ring on the team. I said, Pam, you shouldn't have told me that. (laughs) I said, call me when Conseco orders his ring. So she calls me up a couple of weeks later and she says, Jose ordered a size 14. And um I said, Okay, that's fine. Give me a 14 and a half.
2: <laughs> I love it.
1: And I got a ring sizer in here now, and it's still too big for me. So <laughs> we go it. the next spring. We have our uh, you know, they give us out our our uh World Series rings uh at the at the ballpark, or where was that? I I forgot where we were, but anyway. I had already told several guys about the story that i had the largest ring and jose thought he had it so when i got called up i asked them uh, who, who was the guy uh one of the announcers i had already asked him but i said can you know can i say thank you to the team for getting me this ring because i was i was a coach for them and they voted me in for everything and um <clears throat> so i thanked the team for the ring they already knew this anyway yeah everybody knew it and I said, I also want to tell you that this is the largest ring on the team this year. It's a 14 and a half. And Jose grabbed his box and he opens it and he starts looking at it and the whole team started laughing really hard <laughs> and stood up and gave me a standing ovation. That's like this. It was great.
0: I it love
1: great. it. They, they told me I was, I was the only guy ever to poof Jose Canseco.
0: <laughs> I love it. That's so good. I love it. Well, let me ask you this. I, I've got to start from the beginning because you have an amazing career. And um, an amazing history. Um, can you tell me where you were born and raised and what your childhood was like when you were growing up?
1: I was i was actually, uh, my parents were living in Sacramento at that time. Uh, and I'll say it out loud, Del Paso Heights, because it was a great place to live. And when my came time for my mom to have me, she uh, went down to Bakersfield so she could be with her mother since I was her first child. So I was born in Bakersfield, California, and she stayed down there. I think about six, seven, eight months after I was born, and then we moved back to Sacramento, where we had a house, and that's where I was raised here in Sacramento, on right off of Grand Avenue, five blocks from the elementary school, five blocks from the junior high, and five blocks from Grant High School.
0: And do you have any brothers and sisters? And what was your childhood like growing up? I have three brothers. Uh,
1: one is deceased now, and I have two sisters. Um, and all we all live in Sacramento, except uh, one sister lives in Dallas.
0: And and, and what was your child? What was your childhood like growing up?
1: Well, by the time I was five years old, I had two. I had a brother and a sister, and I had a, a radio flyer wagon, and that's. That was my job at that time. When I was five, I was taking care of a brother and a sister, and uh, my wagon was their joy. So I pulled them around. That's, that's probably where I got strong legs from when I was little. But uh, we had a great time. We had uh, you know, our dad, my dad, Leon Lee Sr. Um, he was a jack of all trades. And mainly what he did uh, was work from sunup to sundown, no matter what. I mean, he ended up with six of us. And we never went hungry. We never had a hole in our shoe. Um, and and he, that's what he did. He took care of his family. Uh, so we, we had a great time. And we, we all basically balanced. You know, My mom was a great cook. I tried several times to get her to make a cookbook when we were in Japan. I'm going like, everybody's trying to figure out why we're so strong and so, and so durable. We played every game every year. Um, and I'm saying we because my brother came over and played after my first year in Japan my brother, Leon Junior, but she wouldn't do it. And and I said, you know, right now we we would probably have us a TV show in Japan. uh, The Lee brothers cooking rice and and beans, you know, (laughs) but uh, yeah, growing up, we had a great time. Our school was right there. Our parents were home. My mom was home every day. I I think it was one time from kindergarten through high school that I came home and my mom wasn't there. And that was very dramatic, you know, I'll tell everybody. I know a lot of people these days, there's both parents got to go to work. My mom never did. She she raised us and she was home for us. And it made a huge difference. I have I have five siblings right now. And even even my brother, Tommy, who passed away, was a professional musician. My two sisters are professionals. One works for a doctor's group, uh, my youngest. Uh, My sister in Texas worked for American Airlines for 34 years, I believe it was, 32, 34. Um, Of course, my one brother was a baseball player and Leon played pro ball for 20 years. And my youngest brother is a plumbing contractor, actually took over my dad's uh, contractor's license. So that's what he does now. He's got a very good business.
0: What kind of lessons did you learn from your mom? Go ask your dad
1: if you wanted to do something. (laughs) How about the window story? We never. uh, Our dad was very strict, but he was very quiet. And um, when he came home from work and had dinner, and we watched TV for a couple hours, there was no noise in our house, even though there were six kids in a two-bedroom house. You know, it was like. It was silence because dad was home. When he was gone, we made a lot of noise. But uh it, we 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 had a we had a a really, really nice neighborhood is what it was. And in those days we didn't have to lock our doors. There was no I mean, there was crime, you know, there was it's weird, there's no place that was elite from that. But we had uh, uh what they call today, we we had a really nice village, our three or four square miles. Everybody knew each other. A, a few weeks ago, we had a big dinner for uh, one of our good buddies, Leon Brown, who lived one block from me across Grand Avenue on the other side. And his brother Curtis—they both played pro ball. Uh, they got to the major leagues. And we used to play catch from my front yard and in their front yard across Grand Avenue, which was the main drive through Del Paso Heights. And we were playing catch out there. Um, it, it was—it was a good
0: time, great time. That- when did you start getting into sports? Did, was all your family involved in sports, and how did you get in? It seemed like when I kind of I've done a little research on you, you you were good at all the sports that you participated in. And so, what what kind of made you hone down to baseball? And how did you get into football? I'm gonna I'm gonna look at two things actually. You excelled in football and baseball. And yeah, what well, made I, you I, get I, involved I with baseball, them? Baseball, you
1: know, my latest story on baseball, and this is something I didn't know until I was seventy years old. And I'm at my seventieth birthday party, and we did it jointly with my mom, who is exactly twenty years older than me. Um, in three days, uh, her it was her ninetieth birthday party, and so um, I, 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 I gathered all my friends. And but well, first, I got to give congratulations to Juliet and and her sister Vivian for putting on the party. Uh, it 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 was like it was it was great. It was super great. And I fly radio control airplanes. And I've done that for 30, 40 years now, since I was 18. Well, so that means it's longer than that. huh? <laughs> but this was the first time I had my radio control buddies there. I, I, I have a huge model railroad layout in my garage, HL scale. I had my railroad buddies there. I have baseball buddies there. I have high school buddies there. And actually, this is the first time they ever met each other. We're, we're all in the same room are I mean, they're all different types of people. And uh, so we had a great time. And um, I forgot where I was going with this. Hmm. Anyway, I'll think about that later. But we had a good time. Oh, I know where it was. Baseball, how I got started. So I'm talking to people, telling them about baseball, this or that. And I got into the story of me having a higher lifetime batting average against left handed pitchers and I'm a left handed batter. And uh, so my mom chimes in and she says, I can tell you why you hit better against left handed pitchers. And she said, because I used to throw you batting practice when you were little. I mean, this is before Little League and she's left handed and I'm batting left handed. Mm And I, it shocked me because she had never said that before. I had never thought about that before. And so my beginnings into baseball was because of my mom throwing me left-handed batting practice. I became a really good left-handed, left-handed batter. And, uh, against and, left-handed pitchers.
0: And so what, how old were you when you first started playing organized sports?
1: Probably eight. It's uh, when we started little league, um, we had a really nice little league at Hagenwood Park. Um, it, it didn't cost a lot of money in those days, so all the parents were involved, all the kids were involved, the park was involved, the city, everybody out there. And we could play Little League for $5, uniforms and all. And we had great sponsors. All, you know, Everybody down on the corner of uh, Grand Avenue and Marysville Boulevard was sponsoring the team. Uh, it all went together really nice. Tell that
2: window story.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing another story uh, talking about family now. Um, since I was the oldest, whenever my dad and mom had to go to the store or go do some business, I was in charge. You take care of the kids. They always trusted me to do that. And so one day we're horsing around in the family room, and I had one of my brothers on my back, and uh, we we're, we're I don't know what you call that bumping around horsing around and we broke a window actually cracked it you know and it's a huge eight by four by eight window or something we had two panels there in that in that family room and oh my goodness we didn't know what to do what is dad going to say when he gets home and um so everything got quiet we were waiting for them waiting for them so finally he came home he saw the window i told him what we were doing and he said did anybody get hurt i said "Nope, didn't get hurt he went out bought a new window pane and fixed the window, never said another word about it. And we were going like because we we thought we were in serious trouble. And we used to do the same thing when we started playing baseball in the front yard. At at first, we would hit it to the edge of our yard because we were little. But as we got bigger, we started hitting it across the street. next thing, we started breaking the windows in the house across the street. And um, and one day, the the ball broke. uh, Mr. Falconer, that was his name, broke his window. And he, he didn't give us our ball back. And I mean, those things were at premium then. We were, we, had, we were using tape balls, bottle caps, lemon balls, Waffle balls, anything that we could hit, we would hit it. And uh, so my dad got home from work and he went across to his house and he uh, measured the window, went and bought a window pane, fixed his window. And he told Mr. Falconer, anytime you hit the ball over here, just throw on their ball back and let them play. And I'll fix your window when I get home. I'm going like wow, you know. I, I told that story to my girls when they were little, and they both started crying. They thought that was so great. Yeah,
0: because your dad—that was your dad's way of supporting you, supporting totally. you, and and so, yeah. And I know I'm gonna. I use I'm going a little out of order here. When you made it, just makes me think of another question they ask you. When you finally made major league baseball, that must have been such a proud moment for your dad.
1: Oh, yeah, you know, we it was it was it was some good times in between there, too. Um, but I was pretty far away in St. Louis, you know, they still had a bunch of kids at home, they in school and stuff. So they didn't get to St. Louis, I think once or twice uh, that year. Uh, but I think that first year in the majors, my, my most exciting part was my grandmother in Sacramento. I pinch hit one day and it was Saturday game of the week. In those days, we, they didn't have games every day, and they didn't have uh, YouTube. And so you didn't see people on television that much in the, in the old days. And uh, my grandmother saw me on television, and she almost had a heart attack, they said. And uh, it was, when I got home, she was all over me. She, oh, I saw you on television, whatever.
0: I'm just glad Nolan Ryan wasn't pitching because he struck <laughs> me out every time. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this question. So you excelled in elementary school, and in high school, you really started to excel. Yes. Um, and it sounded like you were a two-sport star. You were, uh, uh, I know you had 36 football scholarships from all these major universities. Yeah. Was it difficult for you to choose between the two sports? Uh, you know, it wasn't. And I'll
1: give a little background on that. My high school principal, he actually was my, the boys' vice principal in junior high. And I I, at that time i was only playing baseball i didn't play football i didn't play basketball and i told everybody i was going to be a major league player and i don't do anything else i don't i still i can't swim today because it was kind of like out of the way and um my uh high school boys vice principal came to me and he said uh we had a big talk about it playing football and he said would you like to have options you know when you get out of school and you know you got you got Four or five years left, whatever it was. And the way he put it, I mean, you'd have to say, yeah, you you want to have options in your life going forward. Uh so he said, Can I help you with that? And I said, Absolutely, you can, absolutely, surely. And every every we had this guy is really kind of like a, a bulldog. Everybody, he was scared. He was used to rattle his keys and coming down and everybody get out the way because here comes Mr. malcation But here I am sitting there talking with him, and he's telling me about the future in which my future was gonna be baseball. But and the and the way he put it to me, I had to say yes and he helped me. Ninth grade I started playing football. Tenth grade I went over to in those days we had three years of junior high, three years of high school. So in a sophomore year in high school, I'm on the varsity football team, but I'm a lineman. And um you know I didn't I didn't know any difference. I'm playing whatever position so the junior varsity coach mr adolphus mcgee uh came down and he asked the head coach of the varsity team if he could have me on the junior varsity team as a running back and i said yeah 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 that's way better than playing in the line you know Uh, so i went to jv and i started i was a a running back and um that was very enjoyable uh And in those days at our high school, at Grant Union High School, if you go look at the records in uh, 64, 65, 66, Grant Union High School had the fastest relay team in the country, in the USA, they actually in one track meet when we were senior year, they had an all star team of what was it the 400 by four relay, I think it was 100 yards a piece. Or maybe it might have been 800 we beat them at the modesto relays we beat the national all-star team so when i was in high school i was not considered fast when i got to pro ball everybody started saying how fast runner you are but at my high school it was an embarrassment i mean you didn't get close to the track because you know you're like oh those guys could run. our second string relay team was fastest faster than the first relay team But they didn't go to school enough they you know they were walking around the streets instead of coming to school so they couldn't go on the relay team but um yeah those days i i mr Malkasian put me in the in the mode of he's going to help me he's going to give me some options so by the time i got to be a senior uh my baseball was really good i batted over 400 every year uh hit a bunch of home runs and we had to run our home runs in those days we didn't have fences you had to run them out and I had the 35, I, I don't even know, I lost count, 35 scholarships to play football. I mean, all major schools. And um, so, yeah, when I got to be a senior, I had options, great options and uh, my grades were right. And the first school I went to look at was Stanford. And um, we talked to the coach over at Stanford. We went to a football game, which they were playing USC. And uh so uh, I, I told my uh my football coach went with us, it was me and Grantlin Johnson. And I mean I, th- I think everybody here in Sacramento knows Grantlin Johnson. He was he was the fullback and I was the halfback in our football team. And I'm like three times bigger than he is. I should have been the fullback, he should have been the halfback. But I I ran a little faster than he did. But uh we're sitting there watching the game and I tell the coach, I want to go to SC. And so I went, came home. When we got home, I pulled out all my letters and I called the coach at SC. And they said, Leroy, he says, we would really like to have you here. um, But I got to tell you, we're taking OJ Simpson. And more than likely, you would be second string, right? I said, okay. I I didn't want a red shirt. I said, so I'll I'll look at some other places. I called Arizona State. The coach was uh, Bobby Winkles, I think at that time, baseball coach. The football people told me that they weren't going to let me play spring baseball the first year. Well, I don't care how many options I had. I, I'm not going to miss a baseball season <laughs> anytime. <laughs> so I, I told him, no, I'm not coming. And years later, I'm in the major leagues and Bobby Winkles is the manager of the California Angels at that time. And he says, why didn't you come to Arizona State? I said, they, they told me I wasn't going to play. Uh, they wouldn't let me play baseball the first spring. He said, I knew that. He said I had that all wrapped up. I said, you were gonna play baseball every day we had practice. I said, well, you, you should have told me I probably would have came. You know, <laughs> it so, was like, wow, I mean, here's like it's like 10 years later when we're talking about this. And and that was that was how real everything was in those days. Yeah.
0: So Lauren, you end up choosing baseball, but you could have you could have ended up playing college football. And baseball at the same time. So you would have been one of the two the two sports uh athletes. No. In those days there was no two sport athletes.
1: Uh, you know, like Bo and uh who was the other guy, the the running uh defensive back? Uh can't think Deion of Sanders. Deion Sanders, yeah. Those guys were going back and forth and whatever. But I think back in the sixties we couldn't I don't believe we could do that. Uh was what we were told. So uh you had to make a choice. Um, and when I got drafted by the Cardinals, uh, graduation day, 1966, I think it was June 7th, I got the phone call and the next morning on the newspaper on the 7th, I was the number one pick for the Cardinals, uh, number seven in the nation, which was pretty high.
0: Hey, let me ask you a question. Um, what gave you the drive, if you can recall and remember what? And I'm sure you have that. You have that same drive now. But what do you think gave you the drive, if you can think back in time, to be so persistent and driven? You're 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 an elite athlete. What pushed you so hard in 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 those sports?
1: Probably words of wisdom from my grandfather, um, on my mom's side, calling him Big Daddy. And when we were little, we would go, always, we'd go back down to Bakersfield for Thanksgiving or family reunions and things like that. The center was Bakersfield, Big Daddy's house. And he would always talk to the kids, uh, you know, near the end of the three-day party, or whatever it was. And he always told us, no matter what we do when we grow up, be good at it. And he would say, be the best at it. And um, if you start something, you finish something. And he would end up saying, even if you become a hobo, he would say, "Be the best damn hobo there is." And that was it. Uh, no matter what we did, you're going to be the best at it. And that, and that's what I told you a few minutes ago. I have five brothers and sisters, all professionals. Um, and I, I always told my mom and dad that you know they were hall of fame parents because everybody that they raised, you know, made it. We went someplace. It wasn't. It wasn't four out of five. It wasn't five out of six it was
0: six out of six hey let me ask you i'm gonna throw this over to my co-host right after this question and and then i'll jump back in later um there's some somebody brought up this resilience thing i have friends that um their kids play um baseball you know the, 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 the the little small little leagues yeah and one of the things that she she wanted me to ask you was I have to give a little shout-out to June and Helena because they're the ones that gave me some questions for you. And one of the questions they had was, for some of the kids out there, when they strike out or when they miss a ball, it's difficult for them to get over that. And some of them and – they, and they stop playing baseball because they're not resilient in that way. So she said what she really loves about baseball, it does teach you perseverance and resilience because you fail a lot. So you learn – you deal with failure a lot, but you have – she wanted me to ask you, how, do you, how did you get over that? How do, you, how do you get over those disappointing times when you're up at bat? I mean, how do you let that go and say, you know what? I've got another chance at this.
1: That is, that is something that I, I'm, I'm working with a fellow right now. He's, he's out, of, out of college. He's from Arlington, Texas. And the scouts brought him out here to California for me to work with him for three days. And then he's going to summer ball down to Southern Cal. 21 years old and I got a Scott report on him I asked a lot of questions about him before uh, and I here is what I told him and I'm gonna answer your question with the beginning of that story my grandmother who's she was pretty old when I was growing up but I spent a lot of time with her playing checkers we put you know puzzles together if we started a puzzle when I was home in the winter and we didn't finish before I had to go to spring training. She would save it until I got home in the, in the, in the winter that year. And we'd finish that puzzle. But she beat me a lot in, in checkers and all the games we played, you know, card games, whatever. So one day she told me, I'm going to teach you how never to lose. And I said, what does that mean? She said, I'm going to teach you how never to lose. So she set up the checkerboard and we started playing. And of course, she beat me. And then she looks up at me and she says, now, did you lose or did you learn something? Did you lose or did you learn something? And I I kept that with me from then on. Years later, I'm sitting in the dugout in St. Louis and I watched Dick Allen. This was 1970 Cardinals. That was my rookie year. And um, I saw Dick Allen strike out nine times in a row I mean I don't think he hit a foul ball but nine times in a row he came back to the dugout and he used to sit next to me he said because I didn't talk much so he was sitting next to me I <laughs> wasn't asking a lot of questions to people but I asked him the 10th time up he hit a long home run 450 feet just, man gone runs around the bases comes back and he sits down next to me and he does exactly the same thing and I looked at him and I said I said dick I said um I just saw you strike out nine times in a row. And like most little kids and most major leaguers too, little leaguers, major leaguers do the same thing. They throw their bat, they throw their helmets and they get all upset. And guess what? They strike out again. Dick Allen comes back and sits down and I asked him the question. I says, I saw you strike out nine times in a row. The 10th time you hit a home run and you come and you got the same attitude. You still, you're all together. Everything is fine. And he looks at me and he, thinks for a second. And he says, well, he says, because I'm going to strike out again. So a strikeout is not the end of life. Little leaguers, let me tell you this, pony leaguers, high schoolers, junior high. When you strike out, guess what? You're supposed to learn something from that and come back to bat again, come back to bat again. And if you learn something, you're going to next time you're going to hit that ball. It might be the third time. The only thing you tell people, and, uh, and, and this is the kid I'm working with right now, Nate. his name is Nate, is when you strike out, you learn something and you don't strike out again uh, on the same pitch. But that is baseball. I mean, three hits out of 10 is a batting average of 300. So if you strike out seven times and get, set and get three hits, you're a 300 hitter. So what's the difference in a strikeout? If you have a good swing and a pop-up it's the same out it's the same out so i try to tell little kids and i try to tell big kids and i try to tell major leaguers the guys that i talk to when you strike out learn something because you're going to face that guy again he's going to throw you the same pitch
0: again hey i'm going to go ahead and hand this over to to my co-host here mr danzig take it away my friend
2: yeah thanks martin I feel like you get done this entire interview with Leron, you know, Leron, we've known each other for years, but I never asked you, you know, plenty of questions about your career or where you've been. Uh-huh. I always know you just as a person, advice giver, you know, I'm totally fascinated with your uh, baseball career, um, not necessarily from a sports perspective, uh, but from a human perspective of, you know, getting to Martin's point about, you know, what it's like to strike out, for example, and and the impact that it has, you know, I'm wondering, you know, similar lot of thought of you know when you were in the majors you you were in uh cincinnati and then you were traded to san diego what was it like to be traded for the first time
1: oh the first time i was with the cardinals and i got traded to uh the padres that was the first time and it was like my mom kicked me out the house (laughs) like where's all my brothers and sisters i'm out here by myself where's my teammates and it happened so fast and i had no clue um, it was, it was really weird because I was basically the youngest guy that, uh, the, the season before. And at the end of the year, when they brought the guys up from AAA in September, uh, the manager, Red Shames, came to me and said, uh, we are going to put you on the bench. And we, cause we want to see the young guys play from AAA. Well, guess what? They were older than me. <laughs> they were, those guys were a year older than me at that time. I'm gonna like, Wait a minute. So I sat on the bench the rest of the year and then the next spring or next summer they traded me. But to get traded was very difficult. Uh and it's just like, you know, you know all your teammates, you know Lou Brock and Bob Gibson and all those guys are your good friends. I mean, you've been living with them for I was in camp with the Cardinals from 68, 69, 70, 71. So four years I was with those guys. And um it, it was it was difficult. Um and, and you make the transition and you start playing on another team and then same thing happens again second time it wasn't so bad third time it was like oh well i'm gonna keep my suitcase pack, packed here and then uh and then all of a sudden man i get a letter and a phone call and i'm going to japan i'm going like where's japan <laughs> but it was all part of the game it's all part of those options that mr Malkasian told me about when i was in junior high and those options was playing for different teams, and you go there and you do what you have to do.
2: So, what was the nexus between uh, playing in the majors and then switching over to Japan's league? What caused so that shift? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it was. It was. It was. It,
1: it was uh, difficult at first. The language is probably the, the first thing. Uh, but then after a while, I said, you know, actually, it's better. Uh, One of my friends that I I played against here in the States had played in Japan for nine years, and he said, if you learn Japanese, he said, don't tell them that you know Japanese, He said, just tell them you don't know, you don't hear it. So I I told him the whole 11 years I was there, I said, I don't speak Japanese. But of course, I did. And I, I understood a lot of it, too. I understood more than I could speak, actually. But I just never told them that. So when they had meetings and things like that, sometimes I didn't have to go, which was, you know, When you have a meeting for three hours on one pitch, it's kind of boring. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think the biggest transition was mainly the language, uh, which for me turned out better. Because when I got to San Diego, I became the player rep uh, for the team. And in those days, they called the player rep a clubhouse lawyer, which we were. Because we were in between ownership and the team and we had Marvin Miller standing with us, who you know, ownership hated at that time. But but Marvin Miller was great for for baseball. I mean, the guys today are making millions of dollars, and the majority of that is thanks to Marvin Miller. Um, and I still, even though I wasn't part of free agency, I still thank him for what he did because even in the beginning, I mean, he even, he raised the salary caps even in those days uh, for us. So it, he was he was great. Yeah.
2: Yeah. What was the cultural shift like between how Americans play baseball and how Japanese play baseball?
1: Yeah, the uh, probably you know it's it's the same. The bases are the same, ninety feet around the ballparks. In those days in Japan, we were a little bit smaller, but now the Japanese ballparks are bigger than the ones they have in the major leagues because they have, I think they have seven dome stadiums in Japan now, different cities. So most of their games are played inside and they and they did that because they have a rainy season, June, July and as soon as that's over, then they have typhoon season. So we used to get rained out 29, 30 times a year that we had to make up at the end of the season. Um you know, the food is different, of course, the language. Uh, there were in those days there was only two foreigners on each team, so a lot of guys felt pretty lonely. Um, a, a lot of times uh, if a team lost a the game, they would blame the foreign players for not playing hard or whatever. We were kind of like scapegoats. Uh, they called us sketos, which means helpers. That's all. That's all we were supposed to be. And uh, it, it, was, it was different, but the same. And, and part of uh, an answer that I had a few minutes ago from Martin, I was, I was going to say this. Reggie Jackson said it one time. Major League Baseball is almost the same as Little League Baseball. We do the same exact thing. The bases are a little shorter in Little League. We can't hit the ball as far. But the basis of the game is the same. And, um, and if you look at any major league player that played really well, I mean, superstar status, he had the same swing in Little League that he had in the major leagues. And I've studied that uh, a ton. And, and if you go back and look at p- certain people, you will see the same swing that they had in the little league that they had in the major leagues. And it's one of the bases of my training. Uh, when, I, when I give batting lessons and things, I will tell them. I'll tell the parents. I'll try to tell the, all the batting coaches that are out there teaching kids how to hit that don't try to change them. Uh, just let them be free and let them swing. Teach them how to get the bat head on the ball. And they will be a lot happier. If you change them, then they feel a complete felt in, the, in their system and or what, what they've done. So if Paul Danchek is a right-handed batter and I'm your batting coach and I come and tell you to bat left-handed, just like that, and you turn around and start hitting left-handed, your failure rate is going to be even more and uh and then what are you going to do are you going to quit are you going to bat left-handed it's not going to happen you're a right-handed batter you're a right-handed person um it's it's really difficult at times with those with with young kids especially because you gotta you gotta keep them interested you gotta keep them going you gotta keep them excited and a lot of the coaches today are reading books, trying to do what Ted Williams did with a little anger. So I I never do that. Um, First thing I tell a, a kid today at college or whatever, I'll tell them I'm the best batting coach in the world. And they look at me like this. Well, this guy must be obnoxious or something. And then my second sentence to them is I'm telling you I'm the best batting coach in the world because I know you are a great hitter. And we match up and we'll we'll do this together so and i try to get them on the same level that i'm at as far as confidence is concerned so the first thing is when they get their confidence level up they hit more balls did they change anything in their batting nope they just have more confidence and um and and that's 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 what we do yeah
2: See, there's tight games in japan
1: that's the difference is Yeah, I think. And here going back here to one of the other questions, uh, one of the first things that was really different in Japan was Thai games. Uh, and because of the train system in Japan, the last train leaves such and such, they're all is 930. If you haven't caught a train home by 930 in Japan, you got to take a taxi or you got to walk because trains are not running anymore. So we had to finish the games like nine o'clock. And, uh, of course, the first time it happened to me, and they do this to all the foreign players, they don't tell us. <clears throat> so here's here's a tie game, and the, actually the game is over a certain time, and, and every single time the foreign player is running back out on the field for the next inning. And everybody's sitting there waiting and watching and laughing because we're standing out there by ourselves. And... Um, so it happened to me so when my brother came I, I let it happen to him too so but that was that was one of the big differences and they finally they got out of that they stopped doing tie games about i was there for eight years and we had tie games you could win a pennant with a tie game because you have a point you know what was it like
2: playing with your brother say that again what was it like playing with your brother
1: oh it was great it was great um Once he came over to Japan, we uh, that was I went in 77 and he came in 78. And our stats at the end of those next 10 years was exactly the one year difference. uh, Me having the the plus year on him, but he did really good. He was he was young. He was I think he was 24 when he came. And um, did a great job. 1980. Um, we hit back-to-back home runs 12 times. I batted third, he batted fourth. We hit back-to-back home runs 12 times. His sixth year, he got traded to the Yokohama Tayo, Wales. So we were in different cities and we hit home runs within five minutes of each other six times. And they the people were counting this. I mean, we had we had pretty high status then. You know, we, we were our team was called the Lote Orions. And by nineteen eighty, our team was called the Lote Lees.
2: <laughs> it was like <laughs> the fans
1: were fans were great. We we were having a good time, but we had offensively and everything in, in baseball there on that team. We were we had a really good time. Yeah.
2: Walk me through the moment that you broke the batting record, um, and it's a record that you held for many decades. Was it almost forty decades um, in Japan? What was it like? What was 40, forty decades?
1: Not forty decades. I'm
2: not that, I'm not was that it old. 40 years? Not forty decades. Forty years.
1: Thirty years. Thirty. I think 30 it was years? 30, 35 years. Yeah, it's pretty close to forty. You're right, Paul. Should yeah, I had decades, I had probably. I I ended up with the highest lifetime batting average of all the foreign players and the Japanese players. I had the highest lifetime batting average in the history of Japan. For, I, I think uh, I forgot his name, but he just broke my record uh, two years ago, three years ago. Um, and I, I didn't know it at the time uh, that uh, that somebody was that close, but uh, I guess he's at 322 and mine is 320. And, um, I, I thought that was pretty cool because, and, and I'm I'm not i I'm not a complainer, but we had a huge strike zone. The foreign players had a big strike zone because they thought we were stronger than they were. So we we uh, we had to do a lot of uh, improvising. And uh, if the umpire called us out on a strike, that was a foot outside. We would come back to the dugout and I tell my brother it was too close to take. So we practice, we practice every day of hitting balls off the plate this way, that way, upside down and backwards. And we could hit every ball. And the one question we asked ourselves at the end of this careers was, you know, if we would have stayed in the States where we had a real strike zone, would we have become that good? I mean, we were really good um and and the answer always was you know if we, we if we weren't pushed we probably wouldn't have done it and a lot of foreign players went to japan i mean really good hitters and within a month or, or two months they would quit and go home because they couldn't take take the strikes they couldn't take uh, the adjustment that they had to make to uh what japanese baseball was at that time
2: man that's crazy yeah, you never everything about you know things like the subtle things, right? That make a big difference in how you prepare for the game and the psyche, the psyche behind it of you know, how you go about preparing yourself for it. Yeah. I want to ask you a question about uh, you bat left, uh, but throw right. Was that yeah. ever a, a challenge for you um, at any point in your career? Of uh,
1: no, it came to- out. It, it came out actually. It's it was better for, for because it. I'm doing things left-handed and right-handed. When I first got to Japan, uh, our first spring training game was against the Tokyo Giants, which was uh, Sadahara O was uh, the home run king of Japan. And of course, I'm supposed to be the home run king of Lotte now since I was a foreign player. So they did a lot of press with us, and we did some pitches, and we did a few dinners. And we got a chance to talk. you know, through our my interpreter and his, uh, he had an interpreter. But he taught me right away, uh, because I'm left handed and I bat left handed, that I should use my right hand more. Because when you bat some balls are inside and you use this hand, some balls are outside and you're going to use that hand. So you am a dexterous, with your batting. I said, Wow, he said, I said, What should I do? He says, well, Actually, you should start eating. Right handed, you should start riding right handed or something just to make your right hand work for you over this this hand. So you're not top hand heavy. And um, when I played, you know, the eight years I played in the majors and minors and every place, I never hit a lot of home runs. I hit home runs. And when I got them up, they went far. But if this top hand comes over, I'm going to give you guys some batting lessons for your two boys, Paul. If this hand comes over, the ball is going to have a top spin. And it's gonna hook and go foul. And you'll see it a lot in the majors today. Guys will top hand the ball, and the ball, instead of staying fair, it'll hook foul and go up in the bleachers. So, a good pitcher who knows a guy uses his top hand to put him inside, the ball, inside, the ball, and put foul, then he'll throw him an outside slider and he's out. That's just strategy. What O taught me was to keep the hands inside the ball, bottom hand and the top hand when I use it. And and the first spring training game, I hit a home run that in the States would have been a foul ball. So I, I learned something really huge, the actual first game that I played in, in Japan. And I, I, I just went back to everybody who played there, and I started looking at Japanese players. And I started hitting inside the ball. And over the 11 years I was there, I averaged, uh, I think, 28 home runs a year, a little bit more than 28 home runs a year. Um, you know just it's something and I, I tell my young hitters this now you're never too old to learn something, never too old to ask a question and find out something. yeah. um you know there I mean we could talk the, the differences and the things that are the same in Japan baseball and American baseball. I mean we see it now with Joji Otani on the Angels with Ichiro uh, who played over here for 10 years with Seattle and, and the Yankees those guys can play major league baseball they have their own little system in japan and that has expanded now because of ichiro and the Otani and all these guys there's some great players and, and and probably i i told this story yesterday the best pitcher i ever faced was in japan and his name was cage suzuki left-hander and um this guy you know everybody thought you know carlton uh steve carlton was a tough pitcher Suzuki, if he would have been over here pitching, he'd have won 30 games every year. I mean, this guy was absolutely nasty. And uh when he hurt his back, he hurt his back about the fifth or sixth year and uh, you know he was getting old, hurt his back, and that's what I, I I got him back for all those years when he was getting me out. Yeah.
2: I have uh two more questions, Marnell. I'll toss it back to you. Uh do you still get fan mail?
1: Yes, I do. <laughs> I, I get I get fan mail from uh, Japan and Taiwan and Korea, and the the best ones I get I always show them to Julia let Juliet read the letters. But we got one not long ago, and I've had several. And uh, the kid says, "My grandfather told me all about you, and I want your autograph." <laughs>
2: like your <laughs> grandfather,
1: <laughs> my grandfather saw you play. And it's, it's really fun. I mean, some of the letters we get are so neat. And most of them we get from uh, the states, we get from back east, New York, Pennsylvania, all that area, Chicago. And and most of them are because uh, July the 4th, 1972, I broke up Tom Seaver's no-hitter in the, in the top of the ninth in New York. And um, uh, I still get letters people talking about that no-hitter. You know, I got the hit that broke it up. But the best part it was fourth the fourth of july we had it was forty thousand people there and the first time up in the second game i got booed by forty thousand people because i broke up C, was no hitter right second pitch i got in that at bat the second game uh center fielder jumped up and took it off the fence i almost hit a double it almost was a home run but i got booed all the way around back to the dugout now everybody was clapping they were laughing and stuff i said that, that's pretty good uh shot right there, but we, uh, a little
2: bit, of, little bit of humility comes into play.
1: Yeah, it was it was fun. Um, but, you know, for little leaguers and kids playing ball today, striking out is part of the game. Um, and when you strike out, you shouldn't get mad or upset. If you do, you, you block yourself out of your next at bat. Yeah, so don't get upset. When your kid strikes out, it's an out pick it up and get it the next time, yeah.
2: You started out the conversation today talking about this great family unit and neighborhood unit in your village as you framed it. Um, And I recognize that, you know, we're uh, talking about the six degrees of separation when we look at networks Um, and, you know, Martin and I might have six degrees of separation, but I feel like everyone knows you or you're like one person away from knowing people. How do you still stay connected with your old friends? Um, And how do you continue to make new friends?
1: Well, you know, I have have a great wife. Um, I met in Japan. We got married and we have two daughters. Juliet, of course, is here. And Vivian, who works for Disney. Uh, Creative, uh, what is she? Creative designer or something. Anyway, they keep me well informed about everything. I mean, I even have, see that watch I have there? (laughs) Where's that? I got I got a computer watch and uh, I have no I have no idea how, how to I don't even have a laptop computer, but I got computers all around me and, and the girls help me with that. They help me with everything that we do. We we basically do it together and, and we've had a wonderful time, wonderful life. And I, I, you know, I connect with a lot of people. I told you I do model airplanes. Uh, we have a club that has 230 members. here out. In, we fly out in Lincoln, I do model railroads, and I, I'm connected with several of those, uh, one in Colorado, one in Arizona, a friend of mine right down the street has a huge layout, and we run trains at his house. So we, we have a good time. Um, yeah, and even actually yesterday, I called Cito Gaston, um, who managed the Toronto Blue Jays, the two World Series, we played together in San Diego and i i said i, I he wasn't home i left him a message i says did uh did john matlock play in the in the atlanta Braves organization in the minor leagues and uh because I, I know he played for the mets because i had to bat against him but i'm I was trying you know things like that we got a bunch of names we got a bunch of guys that are still hanging out and hanging around and we call each other from time to time one of my neighbors leon brown came up from um, phoenix he's been living in phoenix the last 40 years so leon's coming so we got we had 15 guys got together for a luncheon little luncheon down at tower cafe right here on broadway and we're all sitting there And we had leon horn in there who leon horn at our high school beat uh tommy uh who's the guy with the black glove in mexico city um tommy um smith He was the only guy that beat tommy smith in the in the 440 or something he was at our high school he comes to the dinner and and uh uh we had reggie pruitt there who was on that relay team that i told you about uh we had three or four other baseball players that came steve green uh curtis brown leon's brother and and, and here we are everybody's still in sacramento and we're enjoying our lives and you know we're all 74 to 80, you know, guys are limping around. But we're, we're enjoying talking about what we did in Del Paso Heights at Grand High School, you know, 50 years ago.
2: Man, that's
0: yeah, that's
2: so cool. Yeah. Leroy, it's been so much fun uh, being able to spend this time with you. Martin, thanks for the opportunity. I know you have oh, some more questions.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I, I've got I've got a few for you. I, I know um, we're baseball fans here, so it's, I'm like a little kid right now. So you got to you got to you got to bear with me on this one. So who are your who is the most difficult um, player pitcher you've ever uh, batted against in your career in the Major League Baseball? And then who were your favorite players when you were playing with who are the players you loved playing with and kind of like did you have did you have heroes and people that you've always wanted to play with? And then you're actually on a Major League Baseball field with them and they're like across from you.
1: Well, um, in, in those days, almost all of those guys. I I never liked a lot of pitchers uh, because I always had you know pitchers were trying to trying to strike you out. And um,
2: Hall
0: of Famer, you got in the Hall of Fame because you
1: expect that. Probably, I'm thinking of the toughest pitcher. Uh, and I'll tell you, I, in '72 against Tom Seaver. I batted 11 times. I got 7 hits.
0: Wow.
1: Off Tom Seaver. That's amazing. I batted 4 times against Steve Carlton the year he won 27 games. I batted 7 times. I got 4 hits off of Steve Carlton. The toughest guy in those days was Nolan Ryan. And if Nolan Ryan, if these guys today, I'm looking at guys pitching 100 miles an hour, 99 miles an hour. You know, somebody's throwing 106. If these guys are throwing like that, if these guys are throwing 95, Nolan Ryan was throwing 295 because it's no, it was no comparison to anybody. Uh, one day, I went to the ballpark in St. Louis. It was my rookie year, and it was a, one, a 105 game. I'm on the bench, um, sitting a pinch hitter. That's what that was my job at that time. I was uh, what was I 22 and uh so we didn't have to get to the ballpark till 11 because it was a day game they had put that astroturf in there It was 129 degrees at 11 o'clock that day so i had on my special shoes had on my had, uh had my cushion to sit on the bench had my sunflower seeds two hands full and i walk out about 15 minutes before the game and uh, uh somebody runs over to me and says uh have you looked at the lineup card it was Bob Gibson. <laughs> and I said, no. He says, well, you better go look at it. So I go over and look at the lineup card. I'm batting fifth. I said, I said whoa. So I ran back up in the clubhouse. I had to change clothes because I'm, I'm, I'm going out there sitting on the beach, right, eating sunflower seeds. I wasn't playing. And so I get back out there. I'm ready to run out on the field. And uh, Gibby comes up to me again. And he says, have you seen who's pitching uh, today? And I said, no, I didn't even know who was pitching for the other team. And it was, it was Nolan Ryan. I said, that's why Lou didn't want to play. <laughs> you know, So I'm, I'm out there. Come, we get to the seventh inning, eighth inning, <clears throat> and they pinch it for me. So I had three at-bats that day. Nolan Ryan threw me 10 pitches, struck me out three times. I hit one little foul ball. You couldn't even hear it, just like that. So I come back in. They uh, read hits for me, so I sit down. And here comes Gibby and several other other veteran players. And they're all laughing out loud. And Gibby puts his arm around me and he says, he says, well, kid, he says, if you'd have had about 20 more pitches, you might have hit a loud foul ball. <laughs> <laughs> we all started laughing and, and game is over. You know, we it was it was a good game. It was a good day. But when Nolan Ryan made the Hall of Fame, and I've been told this, I haven't seen it yet myself, I haven't been there. But they have a plaque for him with his 5,000 strikeouts. Well, guess who's on that plaque in Cooperstown? Ron Lee, right down here. Three strikeouts. Oh, no. A, every time I saw any of those guys anyplace, I always told him, Thank you. Now, <laughs> me in the Hall of Fame. Now, I
0: know, I, I know your friend is, you said your friend's Dusty Baker.
1: Yes. And,
0: uh, and, was it tough when you're and like I said, I'm I'm actually doing this interview from East Open. So I used to walk to the Oakland A's games. Yeah. Um, and at that time they used to sell at the stadium pretty regularly back then. Yeah. How was it you as a batting coach? You're a batting coach for McGuire, you're a batting coach for Kenseiko. Um, all those great players, um, Parker, all of them, how was that working with them? The Ricky Henderson, um, and ironically, you're probably friends with Billy Bean, too, because he was a player at the time. But um, yes. but how was it working on that championship team? And, and, and you're the batting coach for some of the most amazing hitters in the history of Major League Baseball. You know, I got a
1: chance to talk to them. I was actually head of the minor leagues. And all of our AAA players uh, that were in Major League camp was why I was in Major League camp with them. And, you know, every now and then I'd, I'd come through there and they would bring me in to talk to this guy, or talk to that guy, or I would go to Tacoma, our AAA team, to bring a guy back to play in Oakland. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I got to be in there, spring training, whatever, and we all worked together. Uh, the thing about Canseco and McGuire, uh, those two, they didn't take instruction. Uh, so you didn't have to, work, you know, didn't have to talk to them at all. I had to I had to cuss out Conseco one day just to get an autograph for some of my neighbors' kids here, uh, but you know those guys were, they you know they did their own thing.
0: So and, let, uh, so let me ask you about that, Lebron. If you have a players that are at that level, is it more difficult to coach them, and how do you coach players that are that difficult? If they teach- know if they're their stars are ready they're established but your yeah. your job is to coach
1: one of the first things i teach young players is to become independent and self-motivated and use the coach for your own advantage uh you know you have two ears and i tell them most coaches and i said even myself i'm gonna tell Nate, I've been talking to the last two days, and as soon as we leave here, I'm going to do batting with him again over at the the high school. You have to decipher what I say and what I tell you or ask you or show you or whatever I'm talking about. And you let it in this ear and you take what you need for yourself and you let the rest go out. You can't do everything that I'm talking about because everything I'm telling you, I learned from... My, my first batting coach was Joe Medwick. He was 80 years old. And we used to sit down and talk about this or that or where you step or where you start, And we would have a conversation. And he let me talk. I'm 18 years old. And I'm talking to Joe Medwick about batting. And he agreed with me with some things and he disagreed with me with some things. But I, I tell kids this. And I said, in order for you to be a good hitter, if you're going to be the best hitter, and this is why I'm the best batting coach, because I deciphered all this stuff out from all these batting coaches and what, through history and time, from from Joe Medwick, uh, Larry Doby. Um, uh, you know, I don't know how long we're going, but I can tell you a super story about Larry Doby and batting. Uh, but you take all this stuff, and Conseco and McGuire are up here, and they have strained all the stuff that they heard growing up and they have what they want and i cannot go there and tell them that billy williams said this or joe medwick said that has no it doesn't dent their armor because they are like this and that's what they're going to hit so everybody knows that everybody expects that i can't go to willie Mays and say willie you need to step the other way No, like william go like you are you crazy so it's not a bad thing once a player gets to that level. And even in, in little leaguers, I start to tell them to make start making their own judgments on what they're gonna do and how they're gonna do it. So if you have, you know, like Paul sons, you want them to be aggressive and take charge. You you They don't have to have the attitude that some of these guys have, but most of your players Tony Gwynn, uh, Wade Boggs, all of those guys who did really well, they did that. They took their instructions here and they put it all together and they formulated their own way to play. And that's what, that's what you want your kids to do. Um, well,
2: I have to
0: tell you, I'm so honored to have you. It's, my, it's one of my final questions I always ask is, what do you want to be remembered for? When you're no longer on this earth, what do you want to be remembered for?
1: You know, I uh, already got that in order. Uh, I will be remembered for my daughters. And uh, one of the questions they asked me when they were little, eight or nine, seven, whatever, why aren't there any girls in the major leagues? And they was, you know, they were serious. And I told them that my answer at that time was the girls are not strong enough. It's unsafe for girls or women to play in the major leagues. And I said to them at that time, there's other ways to be a major leaguer, period. So a couple of months ago, or was it last year? Uh, of course, Julie, is assistant director at the campus here in Sacramento for USC, she's she's Dr. Juliet Lee uh, and her sister is a, uh, in the Imagineering Department, uh, and she's a, one of the creative designers and she's on all the Tokyo projects that happen in Tokyo Disneyland. And then UCLA calls Vivian, and then my girls both did their undergrad work at UCLA. Vivian, uh, can you come and teach a class for us this year um, in film and television? Vivian said, I don't know. i got to talk to, you know, I've got to call and see if I can do that because she's working for Disney. So she calls in and says, Oh, if you got time, yeah, you can do it. So Vivian accepted the job, and she just did her graduate party with, the, with her class a few days ago. But I told her when she called and told us that, I said, Vivian, and I had Juliet sitting next to me, you guys are major leaguers. And, and the stuff that I taught and my wife taught them growing up, have put them in a position I can call them a major leaguer on a very high level. And what I want to be remembered for and the way my will and trust is and everything right now, I will be remembered by my daughters and my wife for a, a long time. And I know I got a lot of friends in Japan, of course, baseball-wise. I got a bunch of records in Japan I didn't even tell you about. I mean, there's one time I went five for five three times in in six days uh, on one streak. Uh, Totally 22 for 27. No (laughs) boosters.
0: Well, all I'm going to tell you, we're going to have to have a part two with you because there's a lot more we have to get to for sure. And I want to tell you, thank you so much. And I have to tell you that. Um, Paul's been wonderful to set this up. And Juliet. I, I've heard so many amazing things about you from Paul and others at USC. So thank you for helping out with this. And thank you, LaRon, for your time. I know you're extremely busy and um, don't forget about us, us folks in Oakland.
1: You know, I, uh, I went, what the kid that I we're working with right now was there was some Oakland scouts there today. And so I got my, I got my green shirt and uh, so I was going to tell uh, Dick Hughes, I said, you know, here, here I am ready to go. But I, I really appreciate this too. This is a wonderful time. And some of the questions you ask about our little leaguers and our young kids, they're, they are the most important people. And the ones who want to play baseball, the ones who don't get a chance to play baseball, learn everything you can about batting and hitting and playing because you can use that in your next step, in your next job, and whatever you do. It all works in together. And those options blend right in. As you grow up and grow old, you still got options.
0: Well, thank you so much, Naron. Thank you so much, Paul and Juliet and our producer, Brian. Uh, join us for our next podcast. And, I, and I'm going to do a part two with you. Oh, I love that. I love that. He she, she puts up a Lee Brothers photos. They're no, that's different. a record.
1: We made a that's, record in Japan. Baseball Japan... boogie.
0: I'll oh, I love, love it. Time. I love it. I love it. And thank you, Brian, for producing this. And y'all have a wonderful day. And 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 join us on our next podcast. Keep learning, everybody. Talk hey. to you soon.
1: Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much.